Hi, welcome back to Soundplay. I'm outside of the Satanic Temple in Salem. This temple has been a pillar of the community and a sanctuary for locals and tourists alike since 2016. The temple is also an art gallery where owners host movie nights and secular community gatherings. But just last May, the Satanic Temple was violently threatened when a man wearing a t-shirt that read the word God set fire to the entrance porch. This act of religious discrimination aside, the Satanic Temple is still opening their doors for those that wish to practice the tenets of this religion, which are largely focused on loving and accepting oneself, rather than worshipping a demonic being, which is the idea commonly associated with Satanism. I was thinking about the Satanic Temple, and about the numerous other places of worship in the city, and I began to realize the many different ways there are to observe religion. As it turns out, Salem State students have done a good amount of audio work on what religion means to them. So first up, we have Regan Doyle's interview with his grandfather, a man who has let his Catholic faith guide him throughout life. The truth will set you free. Uh, I think I think the, the pandemic is easier than what I, from what I, uh, I think it's easier for me to go through the pandemic than what I went through in the past. This is my grandfather. I, my name is Paul Charles Neiman, N-E-I-M-A-N-N. Known to his grandchildren as Papa, he is a man who has lived through many experiences and after all these years has held a calm demeanor, all thanks to religion. An unbreakable bond, one that not many can say they have with God. I've always had a strong faith. Uh, I was very close to uh, growing up. Uh, I always felt close to the Lord uh, that I knew him uh, as I knew him. And uh, I, I think that the... Uh, I think it was mostly because of my background and uh, and relying on him to help me through the tough times, you know. My grandfather also happened to be bipolar. Through my life, I've seen him in his manic state. Usually, this occurred around religious holidays such as Christmas and Easter. Nobody really questioned it in my family. Only recently has he had attention brought to him by one of my aunts as to how religious he can be. Now I found out something new. Uh, this is my daughter Paula uh, brought to my attention. Uh, I find that, I find now that I, uh, when I'm in a manic state, I, uh, I, um, I'm over-religious. <laughs> In his case, he has every right to be overly religious. All because on September 9th, 1983, my grandfather was working for the Boston Edison Company. On this day, he was severely burned from an explosion at Bentley College, Waltham, a job he was doing to support his family. I never knew if I was going to 
survive, but I live from moment to moment, second to second. And somehow God gave me the strength to put all those seconds together to excruciate in pain. Pain that no one could have predicted. Was this a test of faith? Or could it have been just a case of being in the right place at the wrong time? Even through all the pain he endured, and the memories that are sure to scar him, he never lost faith. I just, I just knew in my heart that God would let, not let me down. Even in the pandemic, he has yet to lose faith. An idea that for many would seem impossible. A pandemic which has killed and sickened millions in the U.S. alone. Not to mention what the state endured from the bombing at the Boston Marathon. I asked him what advice he could provide for people who don't believe in God or who don't have a faith. His answer was surprising and unexpected. I'll be honest with you, I don't think there's any hope for non-religious people. Within this interview, he started becoming manic. In his manic state, it was almost guaranteed he would elaborate on his surprising answer, to which he answered, You have to believe in something, you know, because we're only human and we all make mistakes. It was safe to assume he saw hope in those who were religious or have faith. While he is committed to his views on faith and religion, his answer suggested a much deeper idea, equality. A doctor can go into an exam and enter an operating room if he's fully equipped and he might have all the knowledge in his head of how he's gonna save his patient. But being human, being human, we all have a slight fraction of error and he hasn't got any margin to, uh, I'm can't, um, uh, I know um, it sounds like I'm um, char- characterizing, but uh, doctors are no different than uh, the patients. You know, we all have an error of, uh, of uh, making a mistake. Surprisingly, this all sparked from a Western movie about the gold rush he had seen on TV recently. In a Western movie, the truth will set you free. Looking at the saying, the truth will set you free, whatever the truth is, it will supposedly set us free. In the end, we are all human. We make mistakes and are equal. Having faith does not always have to correlate to religion. Neither does believing in anything. It is all in our human nature, and in a way, an idea we took so we could adapt during hardship. The overall takeaway message is all that matters is what we do with our lives in the moment and sticking to whatever beliefs have gotten you this far. Nothing is ever set in stone, and who we are can only be defined by us. For the truth will set us free in the end.
for WMWM 91.7 and the Soundplay Podcast. In Salem, Massachusetts, I'm Regan. Welcome back. Next up, I'm going to play a story by Gabby, who talks to an ex-mafia boss turned pastor. The earthly realm right now. Who Adam actually was. And at that time, what could Noah actually have had? Actually that is side. pastor Alonzo Esposito, Sin, known to many as Bobby Luisi, a former Boston mob boss turned pastor. Bobby Luisi was born and raised in the North End of Boston. At this time, the North End was heavily influenced by the Italian Mafia. Bobby grew up around all the mean guys in the neighborhood, which introduced him to that lifestyle at a young age. Um, really, it's the rest of childhood. 11 years old, I was working for the gangsters, for own bending, doing dime machines and cigarette machines in the pool tables. So my childhood was basically growing up around these gangsters and wise guys. My father was uh, mobbed up with these guys for years as an associate, and uh, one, you know, a few times he was proposing the family for membership. And uh, my family was well respected for years in the North End. Growing up, Bobby went and worked for a carpenter after school, where he was taught how to do carpentry work. He decided this was something he really enjoyed and would like to pursue a career in. But at this time, he was still around all the mean guys in the neighborhood. I kind of liked it, but I really didn't want that life. I seen my father's life in that, you know, and I really wanted to do something else in my life. And I enjoyed the carpentry work. At 20 years old, he got his builder's license, began to buy property and develop homes down Martha's Vineyard. He was successful and this continued throughout the 80s. However, when the market crashed in 89, everything he worked for was gone. I had two kids at the time. I had a minivan they were repossessing and I had $100 in my pocket. And I came back to Boston and I put a gun on my back and I went on the street. When Bobby returned to Boston, he saw something he wanted. And while I was on the street, I noticed all these young guys driving Cadillacs and wearing nice clothes. And these are young kids, you know, where's all this money coming from? Investigating, finding out it's all coming from drugs. This really caught Bobby's eye and was the beginning of a series of events that would leave an everlasting effect on his life. But the temptation with the money, with the drugs was so strong that uh, it didn't take me long to actually get into that business. So I started shaking down drug dealers and before you know it, I was actually dealing drugs myself. And in a short time, I progressed right up to selling kilos and uh, made a few million right away when I came home. And from there, I started building my family. And we were really deep into the organized crime with the gambling, extortion, loan shock, and I had a big loan shock business. By the late 90s, Bobby was a boss up in Boston, but in March of 1998, he had a life-changing experience. I had a, an awakening, more or less. I, I was in the room, I had a demonic attack that lasted about eight hours. At that point, uh, I seen that there was a devil and I seen some terrible things that I did that this thing showed me. And uh, actually, they had to come over from the church, and I took communion that night, and I took Christ in my life. He then started going to church and realized he didn't want to be a bomb boss anymore, but he couldn't escape the streets. A year later, he was arrested for cocaine trafficking and ended up doing 14 years in prison. Turned out it was the best thing that ever happened to him because it was there where his life drastically changed. This arrest was way out for him. So they got me, we ended up selling them three kilos of cocaine and conspiracy to sell four more. 
While away, he took a theology class and began teaching Bible classes. So, I, you know, it was a pretty heavy teaching in, in the prisons. And uh, I just loved doing it. I, you know, and you know, to teach, you have to learn. And I love studying. And believe me, that's what got me through prison, was that peace, you know, being with God and, you know, having the Holy Spirit and being able to help. I helped a lot of people in there. When Bobby got out of prison, he was placed into the Witness Protection Program and took on a new identity in Tennessee, where he would continue religious work. So they put me in Tennessee, and I ended up meeting a woman there in church. We got married, and uh, right next door to our house, there was a, a nice black couple there, nice people, uh, Bishop Coleman, really nice guy. And I told him that I was a teacher and everything that I was doing, and he read my book. Because I said earlier that I wrote a book in prison. And I published it when I got out. He said, you read my book. He says, I want you to come and teach at my church. Now Bobby loved teaching in Tennessee. It changed his perspective on organized crime. I mean, when you see the truth and you know what a lie organized crime is, look as an uh, what it's really about in the treachery. And, you know, they talk about love and... We're brothers and we're this and that, and they're the first ones to turn on you. Uh, there's no loyalty in the life. That's all a lie. It's all a myth. It's all about greed and money. And uh, that's basically what the life is about. And the deeper you get into the life and the more you do, the more you see that. You know, and uh, I could never turn back to that life again. I would never turn back to that life again. When you create a reputation for yourself, it is often difficult to leave it behind. When in Tennessee, Bobby had a whole new identity. It's still difficult. Now, I've been home since 2013 for eight years, and it's still difficult leaving that behind. You gotta remember, we're in that life. It was a flashy life. It was all about action, the people around us, the reputations. You know, I hated the dark side of the life, but I loved the limelight of the life. Like to be like a celebrity. Mm -hmm. We were like little celebrities in our neighborhoods. Everybody knew who we were. Wherever we went, you know, people opened doors for us and set tables up. And, you know, we felt this was our world, you know. And all of a sudden, you go to a place that nobody knows you. It's strange. Although we loved teaching in Tennessee, Bobby loved his family back in Boston and decided it was time to return home. But during the course of time, you know, I wanted to go back to Boston. I was already away for 14 years. Now I'm down to Tennessee. I'm away from my kids. You know, I had three children. My mother, everybody. I just couldn't take it no more. I just wanted to come home. I came back, I think, and stayed. I think it was uh, 2018. And I've been back in Boston ever since. Since then, Bobby has produced his own show on YouTube called The Bobby Luisi Show, where he tells his stories and interviews ex-mobsters. They try to encourage people and show them what they did wrong in their lives in hopes of changing others' lives and keeping kids off the street. Unfortunately, he does receive criticism. Many people don't believe him, but he learned to move past that. It's hard, it's hard for a lot of people to accept that. And they don't. a lot of people don't want to accept that. You know, they call me a phony Christian and... You know, you were never a minister, you were never this, you were never a pastor. You know, this is what they do. But, uh, you know, you just got to take that criticism and just shrug it off and just go on. Because, listen, if you could help one person, you're doing a big work. You know, a million people don't have to love me anymore. I'm not looking for that. I'm just looking to help.
And if I could teach and help people, that's what I'm gonna do. For WMWM 91.7 in the Soundplay podcast in Salem, Mass., I'm Gabrielle O'Brien. The last story I'll play today belongs to Margaret Flaherty, a previous grad student. There are few things more mortifying than crying in public. The wet, the goo, the red. Okay, when a sports hero retires, sure. At a funeral, of course. But what if the tears just happened? while you were surrounded by strangers in a church. I started crying during the service at some point. And I forget what the sermon was about, but it was it was like no sermon I had heard before. There was something that just got to me spiritually in such a way that I could not stop myself from crying in public. But just tears kept coming and I wasn't feeling sad or anything got a tissue out and was kind of daubing them and trying to get a handle on what's happening here. The mystified crier, that's Suzanne. She was a born and bred 1950s Catholic, but those tears were happening at a (gasps) Protestant church. By then I knew it was God. This was God's way of saying, and now this is where I want you to be. A Catholic called by God to be Protestant? Oh no, Suzanne had been taught. The Catholic church is the one true church Everyone in the Protestant church is out to convert you. That's why you don't go. But Suzanne wasn't the only Catholic at the Protestant church that day. The priest at the time, Father Jamie, as I was walking out, shook my hand and he said, Suzanne, I bet this is difficult for you knowing that I'm married. You're used to priests that aren't married. You know, if you have any questions or concerns, but he was raised Catholic. (laughs) In fact, um, all three of my priests there were raised Catholic. Crying and Catholics and questions, oh my. But there was a different kind of oh my waiting for Suzanne after that first teary service. After that, there was adult education. Adult education? What is that? I didn't have that in Catholic Church. We went over and the subject was sexuality. And the priest led it and did the most beautiful talk on sex. I never once in my Catholic upbringing was it ever discussed or you know, there was nothing. It's like, it's like, what is this? And I felt very much spirit-led, if you will, to continue with this church. Cue the happy dance, right? Oh, right, no. Suzanne had grown up surrounded by Catholic influences. At parochial school, she was taught by nuns until ninth grade. At home, there were statues of saints, and Mary, of course, votive candles, mass on Sunday without fail. Her mother even attended mass every day during Lent. It's no wonder that Suzanne felt she'd have to make some strategic decisions before attending a Protestant church. So of course I went to mass first because you cannot miss mass, it's a mortal sin. If you die now, you go straight to hell. That's what I was taught. If you murdered someone, you'd go to hell. That made sense, but if you just missed mass, that didn't make sense. I attended that church by myself for close to a year. Continued to send my children to Catholic Church and to Catholic education. I'll risk my soul by going to this other church, but I'm not going to risk my children's soul. And then there was the possible reaction of her family. 
Oh, my mother was not going to go for this. I was her most religious child, her best chance for sainthood. And Suzanne was right. It was not taken well. And one Easter, my mother just said something about goddamn Protestants. Because I understand my mother's small-minded thinking. I don't judge her on that. I would have been the same if I had just followed along and not questioned anything. Disappointing her family was a lot to shoulder, but the Holy Spirit had called her elsewhere. And I'm going to do what God wants me to do before I'm going to do what the Catholic Church tells me to do, or anybody else. And it was probably the first um, selfish thing I ever did for myself, to say, no, I'm going to do this. But it really wasn't selfish because I was following God. Now attending her new church, questions she had carried her whole life started to be answered. Since she was a child, she'd experienced what she calls knowings, an awareness of something others weren't aware of. One knowing she vividly recalls happened when she was a young woman. Wide awake and vacuuming. And all of a sudden, I just had this immense sense of dread, confusion. She felt compelled Um, to call her sister, and and it turned out her in-law had just been murdered, and her sister could not get in touch with her husband. At the time, Suzanne dismissed the experience as a mere sisterly intuition. However, she was not even related to the next person for whom she experienced a knowing, a man from her Protestant church. This one felt like a a wide-awake dream. But in it anyway, this man, uh, his name was Howard, elderly fellow, he was stooped over and had been there since the cornerstone of the church had actually been installed. So he was so important to the church. I did not know him well, only to say good morning. I had this vision of him, instead of being all bent over, standing up straight and looking shiny and bright and new. Why am I here? Look at Howard, he looks wonderful. And then I see Father Bill too, and he's going into the kitchen and the Holy Spirit says, he's preparing the feast. But I felt I had to call the pastoral care associate and I called her. She actually went and got Father Bill and they went over to Howard's house and he was dead in his chair in the living room. And that's why I saw him, I think, straight and tall and shiny and new and why Bill was preparing the feast. That's what they call Holy Communion. And it was like Bill was preparing the funeral mass, I guess. Finally, after this experience, Suzanne learned the real name for her lifelong knowings. The priest came over to me, tall, big guy. He scrunched down. I was sitting and he said, Suzanne, don't be afraid. You've had a vision. And I said, the funny thing is, I'm not afraid. No, she wanted to learn more about having visions, which she came to know was a type of spiritual gift. A spiritual gift is something that is given to you, and everyone has one or more, um, given to you by God. They're to be used for the body, for the community. It's not just for you to use. Suzanne found out what her specific gifts were by taking a test offered by the priest. Well, I was having a fit because mine came wisdom. You know, it's like, I don't know anything compared to the people in this room. When I say wisdom, they are going to laugh out loud. And this group of people who know scripture inside out, who are gifted people, who are college professors. And I thought, my gosh, I'm going to say it. So it came to me. And anyway, and I said, um, mine was wisdom. And everybody just shook their head, yes. And I'm going, what? Huh? 
So the priest explained what that meant. It's not my smarts or knowledge. It's just God has given me this gift of wisdom. I know what I know. And when I pray for someone and lay on hands, how that comes in handy, I guess, is that the person will say, I'm here for prayer for arthritis. And I lay hands on them and you stop and you listen for the Holy Spirit, you know, God within to kind of speak to you. And I'm hearing um, this person is, is angry and unforgiving. And I just go for it and I just say, you know, I, I'm feeling that, you know, you might have some anger and some unforgiveness in you and just want to pray around that. And I, every time I would pray for someone, I would feel their shoulders relax. Moments like these clarified the purpose of those then inexplicable tears during that long ago sermon. And maybe it was to um, recognize my gifts so that they could be used. And this is a place where they actually had a small inner healing ministry, which not everyone had at the time. Suzanne may employ her spiritual gift for the good of others, but she got some good out of her literal leap of faith, too. She studied. She contemplated. She practiced being still. That was one of the first things God told me, was to be still. I am a, a four-things-at-once person. People can't sit in the quiet. It feels wrong or awkward or like something needs to fill that vacuum. Well, something has already filled that vacuum, and now you're pushing it away. You know, just sit in the quiet. You can do it. You just enter the flow, and, you know, there's something you don't quite know what you should do about it. Now some people say, oh, you lay it at the foot of the cross. Well, that's just too religious for me. I like what are you going to do about this now? Because I have that personal relationship. That is something so many of us struggle to achieve. But Suzanne feels... It's almost like getting back to where you were as a child before the world got a hold of you. Because I came from spiritual life and then they plunked me here. But I'm still a member up here. But, you know, the earth, the world situation makes this the reality. When in fact this isn't the reality. This is just... A moment. That's why everyone says, live in the moment. If you're just here in this moment, in this moment, everything all's well. Doesn't that make sense that that's, it's a piece of that truth that it's truly a spiritual life. And we complicate it with all these things. You do your best and then leave it to the flow. <laughs> For WMWM 91.7 and the Soundplay podcast, in Salem, Massachusetts, I'm Margaret Flaherty. The Satanic Temple is still doing repairs on the porch, well into the month of October of 2022, six months after the initial damage that occurred. Religion and worship can be controversial, but it can clearly serve as a source of inspiration, empowerment, and survival as these diverse stories on religious beliefs have shown. While composing this episode, it was interesting to hear how much faith can affect people. This summer, I happened upon a drum circle while vacationing in New York. The music you are hearing is a recording I took with permission during that event. I think what interests me most about this topic is that faith can extend into so many places, from becoming a pastor like Father Bobby Luisi, or finding your own unique way to relate to the world while playing music in a spiritual drum circle. 
So while I'm not personally connected to or associated with any religion, sometimes it's nice to just sit back and listen. Thank you.